Here we go, y'all. Here we go. How you doing? It is IMCM, and you're listening to your Probably Right podcast, where you are welcome at my house anytime, figuratively speaking, of course. Okay, I'm going to start off with a little prayer. Lord, I just thank you for today. I thank you for every day that I open my eyes and know who I am and who I've been and who I'm going to be through you, through your word, through Jesus. I just exalt you and I praise your holy name for who you are and for what you've done, for the life you led on this world, this this earth in this world, for your sacrifice, for rising again, for ascending to the right hand of the high power, making intercessions for people lowly like myself. I thank you for everything that you've done and everything you're going to do. I just exalt you. And I praise you because you alone are worthy to be praised. You are sovereign above all. I thank you for allowing me to be elect, chosen before I was even in my mother's womb, before the beginning of creation. You knew that I would be and you knew where you would allow me to be. And I just thank you for your grace. I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for your righteousness because my righteousness was as filthy rags. But because of you, I can face tomorrow. I can look to the future. And I know that the things that I go through and others go through on this planet cannot be compared to what is coming in the afterlife for, not even the afterlife, in eternity with you. I pray that as I speak these words to my listeners, that my message will get out loud and clear, and there'll be no interference. I praise you and I exalt you. Amen. How you doing, everyone? Now, I started my podcast yesterday and I completed it. I actually spoke for a whole hour just to find out today that there was nothing recorded. Can you imagine talking to yourself for a whole hour and nobody was listening? (laughs) Well, that's exactly what I did. So let me take a break and listen to this file, because to do it twice would just be absolutely ridiculous. So it's good to know that everything is working correctly. I am so happy. There's certain information that I didn't know yesterday of stuff that I went through and luckily, well, I guess you could say luckily I went (laughs) unfortunately through a dry run of an hour. So I guess I do know my material a little bit better. So that's the positive side. But on the other side, I could have been doing something absolutely different than what I'm doing now. Not that I mind, of course, because I'm happy to be here. And I'm happy that you're here. So here we go. I'm going to start off with a scripture. Now, hopefully you're not feeling bored and you're like, oh, Lord, this guy's going to do Bible study. (laughs) Well, if if that's your mindset, then you're probably not going to like what I do anyways. But this is probably my most important podcast so far. It has to do with 
a few different things. It has to do with doctrine. It has to do with ministers that I've listened to, listeners, um, ministers that I refuse to listen to anymore. It has to do with the black population in like reform type churches or more the reformed theology or Christian Protestant um, churches that get more into the ecclesiastical lineage of the Reformation. In other words, churches that don't base everything they do on feelings and money and lights and repetitive music, stuff like that. If you know what I'm talking about, and if you have attended a church or watched a church like that, then I think you'd be really, really interested in what I have to say today. So, without further ado, I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 4, and I think I'm going to go all the way from Ephesians 4, 1, all the way to, all the way to 16, but I'm going to basically be talking about Ephesians 4, 14, but I don't like to just read a text out of context, if you understand. I know that a lot of people do it, and it seems like they're just bending scriptures to suit their topic. And that's not what I'm trying to do at all today. Okay, so here we go. And again, I did go to public school, (laughs) and I was in special ed. So if you're wondering why my reading is horrible, well, (laughs) it's because I didn't read too many books as a child. It's not because of special ed. (laughs) Here we go. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, and I know it's going to say that, but I can't see it right now. I have to widen the screen. Okay. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, I know my word, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended in the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended. This is Jesus it's talking about, by the way. For up far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
13, until we all attain to unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer, now this is the main part here that I'm getting at for you, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in, into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love now i really want you to pay attention to that 14th verse and of course this is being read out of the English Standard Version, okay? And some would say it's a watered-down version, but I want to make sure that it is simple for anyone listening and my words are clear so that you understand exactly what I'm saying. So, Ephesians 4, 14. I'm going to read it one more time. So that we may no longer be children's... Children, sorry tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay. So listening to that, we understand that there are doctrines that will be available to us to hear. And at times... There are people who will use the word of God for their own purpose, for reasons that are not correct and that are not right. And if you were like myself, a young person growing up in church, you weren't necessarily sure. And maybe even now, even in your older days, or maybe you're a young person, you're not sure if the person you're sitting and listening to Sunday after Sunday or whenever you tune in to certain broadcasts, if they're actually teaching you the word or if they're just teaching you a word that has nothing to do with the word that God has set forth for you to hear and for the body of Christ to hear. And I can honestly tell you that that was me. And I am not making this podcast to slander anyone that does not need to be slandered. I am not a judge, so I'm not going to say who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. I am not here to condemn anyone because that's not my job. Now, I can condemn teachings that I've heard in the past, but I'm just going to speak. And while I speak, I have no intention of being malicious. I understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I know that 
we sin in our lives and we don't necessarily stay there. In other words, I understand that this is the age of cancel culture. So in other words, you could do something in five minutes from now and I catch you doing it. And if I'm able to record it or have a few witnesses, or if I have great credibility, I don't need any witnesses. I just have to put it out there, like say on Instagram or one of the other mediums. And if I have enough clout and if I am speaking for the popular mainstream idea at the time, I can shut you down and this could be your livelihood. This could be your relationship. This could be your life. Um, even so that's something that let's say happened in five minutes or just now. And I can do all that within a day or a few hours to you. There's also, you're leading an amazing life. You're giving to the poor. You're helping the needy you're walking old ladies across the street that can't find their way home and somebody could pull up some dirt on you from say 1997 and you did something really really horrible forget about whatever you've done between now between 1997 and now you're canceled so that's not why i'm here because i understand that people fall But I also know that there is forgiveness. There is a turning, a way to turn away from your wicked ways and embrace the right things. And I have no idea. I have, sorry, I have no desire to dig anybody's coffin. I have no desire to hang anyone or any other negative thing. But I do have a responsibility like other believers to teach the word properly or to at least communicate it because I'm not a teacher. I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. I am not a theologian. I'm just a person and you happen to be listening to my podcast and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think because it is my opinion and I'm going to tell you what the scriptures say because that's not my opinion and you can take those two things and you can decide for yourself and that's about it so after that long disclaimer by the way this show is for entertainment purposes only it's up to you if you take anything that i say seriously but i am just talking to my friends ready here we go so as i said yesterday it's, it's really hard. It's like yesterday happened, but it didn't happen to anybody else except for me. So it's like I remember saying this stuff. But the good thing is I know certain things that I didn't know yesterday. So <clears throat> I'm going to go through a list of ministers. Now, there are approximately 65 ministers on this list. I can honestly tell you that I have listened or read something or like a post or I've listened for them for to them for hours so some I've listened to more than others there are still some people who are not on this list 
for most for the most part this list is in alphabetical order so there's no depth charge so the higher i go it doesn't mean the better the preacher people <laughs> um i will tell you the, the the ministers that i will give air to in this day and age but i'm going to ring off 65 names of ministers that some of them you're sure you've probably heard and some you probably haven't heard and <clears throat> i might throw in a comment here or there but again nothing to throw any poor one off of the right trail but i do want to put the information out there according to what i've experienced i'm putting it out there and i think i have a right and i think i have a responsibility to do that in a respectful manner so i'm going to do my best to do that so the very first person here is actually the first person on this whole list that i actually heard of for whatever reason <laughs> i think it was because he used to i think it was the plain truth magazine if you ever heard of that i think it was herbert w armstrong but i could be wrong anyhow so the first name is herbert w armstrong john avanzini vadi bookham or bockham jim baker now you'll notice that i pronounce most of these names correctly because i honestly have listened to them and i have heard their telecasts and their preachings and stuff like that and i've heard other people say their names okay so tammy faye baker john barnett ryan sorry reinhard bunky it's way over this is a big screen i'm looking at here rodney howard brown juanita bynum morris cirillo Kenneth Copeland, Percy Crawford, those of you who listen to um, WDCX in Southern Ontario, I think that's, it was founded by him. Um, Jan, and Crouch, Jan Crouch and Paul Crouch, they had the Praise the Lord, and that was after Jim, Jim and Tammy Faye had the TPL, wait, no, PTL, sorry, Praise the Lord, dyslexic over here, <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> I'm way down at Jan and Paul Crouch, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Jerry Falwell Sr., Stephen Furtick, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, John Hagee, Kenneth E. Hagen, Jack Hayford, Marilyn Hickey. I gotta move this over. It's like hurting my neck. <laughs> Benny Hinn, Rex Humbard, T.D. Jakes. Noel Jones, Catherine Coleman, Hal Lindsey, Eddie L. Long, Max Licato, John F. MacArthur, James McDonald, Joyce Meyer, Paul S. Morton, Miles Monroe, T.L. Osborne, Joel Olstein, Rod Parsley, Carlton Pearson, Peter Popoff, Derek Prince, Oral Roberts, Richard Roberts, Pat Robertson, James Robeson, Jerry Savell, R.W. Shambach, Robert H. Schuler, R.C. Sproul, Charles Stanley, Lester Summerall, Jimmy Swaggart, Charles Swindoll, Robert Tilton, Jack Van Impey, Paul Washer, Paul Paula White, which I've only listened to him possibly one time, Paula White, just being honest. Jim Whittington, 
And that's basically the list that I'm familiar with. There's also Michael Yusuf, who I've listened to a few times on WDCX. And then these other four here, which I'm going to say in a second. I don't, I'm not sure if I spell, I'm saying their names correctly, except for probably Steve Lawson, of course. But Josh <clears throat> Boyce, Mike Riccardi, and Owen Strahan. Strahan, I'm believing it's Strahan, like Michael Strahan, but I'm not sure. Um, honestly, out of all of these ministers, now listen, over the years, I've listened to them. I can't tell you in order how I've listened to them or what age I was when I was listening to them. But now I will just say the names of the ministers out of all of these that I would actually listen to a sermon from in this day and age. And I'm going to start at the top again in no particular order. Vodi Bakum, John Barnett, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Charles Stanley, Charles Swindell or Chuck Swindell, Paul Washer, and the bottom five, Michael Yusuf, Josh Boyce, Stephen Lawson, Mike Riccardi, and Owen Strahan. That's pretty much the only people I would listen to at this point. Now, I've gone through and I've listened to many of these, these um, ministers, and there are some who are farther way off than others. I believe some were probably misguided themselves. <clears throat> there were some that obviously misguided people on purpose. There were some with financial motives in a lot of what they did. A lot, in, a lot of people in this list were of trickery. And I don't know, but I can honestly tell you that even though many of these so-called ministers were trying to lead people to God, supposedly. <laughs> I have learned a lot. I've seen a lot. And that goes back to the scripture that I was reading at the beginning, going back to Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And that's who I was by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I believe that we need a more intelligent learning as far as the scriptures are concerned so that we can take a scripture and put it against other scriptures in the Bible and see what is what, rather than just pulling scriptures and twisting people's arms to believe what we have to say. And along with my learning as a young man in the Toronto area, the Pentecostal area, and the churches that were mainly of West Indian origin, usually Jamaican ministers from that, and the ministers were from those countries, the West Indies. Um, not a lot of the time, not the most <coughs> woven, intricate words from the scriptures or how can I say that better <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody's ministry but a lot of the churches that I went to growing up the ministers weren't that learned or learned <laughs> learned <laughs> oh, that's funny um, they weren't that educated 
and they did the best they could some of them of course and I believe some led people astray on purpose sadly so I have realized that for me to be fed in a church these days I need to be read or I need to listen to someone who is well read and someone who is teaching the scriptures the way they were meant to be taught not people trying to pull things out of the scriptures that nobody has ever thought of before I don't believe that is the purpose of ministers these days well ever but for some reason some people think that the most that they can do in their church is try to pull out some stuff and then blame it on the Holy Spirit as to why their interpretation is the way it is, the way it is and what they're saying. And they want to give you an, a word that's never been spoken for the last 2,200 years or 2,000 years. And I don't believe that that's what they're supposed to be doing, but that's what they've been doing, a lot of ministers. So basically what I'm getting at is... I just want someone who knows what they're talking about <laughs> and someone who is not leading people astray, someone who's not looking for money, someone who's not claiming to heal, someone who's not all dressed in all kinds of fashion, someone who's not looking to finance the how many million dollar jet such that they can get from one location to the other very, very quickly, which is not even necessary this day, these days because we do have something called the internet. Really, if you want your word to get out there, you don't have to take millions of dollars of poor people to put yourself in a jet to fly around and around all over the place. <clears throat> I believe that you're supposed to teach the word with integrity. I think you're supposed to work out your salvation with, with uh, humility. And I don't believe that you're supposed to be tricking people when you're calling yourself a minister of God, or I don't believe that you should be just basically preaching things and saying it's from the scriptures that have nothing to do with scripture. I think you're supposed to be honest. So that's why I've been listening to more of the reformed old school. You might even call it boring types of churches churches that don't have a lot of drums in their music session some who don't churches that don't spend 45 minutes um pumping everybody up emotionally and singing songs that last for 13 minutes of emotions and then running everybody down for the offering and telling how much money they need to be giving and the building funds and all that stuff I think you probably understand what I'm saying. But I'm not speaking anything against those who have honestly tried to share the gospel in an honest, straightforward manner. Who, ministers who were learning themselves before they were teaching. Not someone who was famous and decided they needed to teach not somebody whose parents were famous and just ended up falling into the head of a church. Not someone who happens to be an amazing singer and ended up being a minister telling everybody else what to do. 
nothing like that. Not those who have issues with the things of the scriptures that are very straightforward. People who are bending rules. People who are saying that Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing to do with this or that. Or people who are living all kinds of alternative lives and then expecting everybody else to accept it. Not those who are showing favoritism to certain cultures and basically bashing others. Anyhow, that was my list, and you can go through it if you ever want to again, and that's how it is. The next segment, I will be speaking about this topic. Actually, this is my topic for the other half of this. The gospel in any color is just as true. And I think you'll understand what I mean coming up right after this. Okay, so I'm going to read a question, and it's a question that should be asked for the average person. You know, growing up as a child in a Pentecostal church with Pentecostal parents from Jamaica, I <clears throat> I saw people being slain in the spirit, people speaking in tongues, people jumping around, music going on for hours and hours, being in camp meetings. I was one of those children that would go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Monday for, hmm, not sure what I would go. Monday might be choir practice, possibly. Tuesday would be men's meeting for my parents, and I might have to tag along if nobody's there to watch me at home. Wednesday would be Bible study. Thursday might be another music practice. Friday would be young people's meeting. Saturday might be another singing or some kind of a get-together or church cleaning. And then Sunday back again. Basically, not always, though growing up and this is my younger years been that probably be from the age of say zero to 16 and then of course I came into my own a little bit and came into my own sin <laughs> a little bit and did things my way after being dragged along with my parents and playing music like the drums and singing in choirs and all kinds of stuff and going to church camp and you get the idea if you're coming from a church kind of church like mine. matter of fact my church was in Toronto but the head office which I always think is I don't think it's such a good idea personally <laughs> but um the head office of our church was in Cleveland Ohio I believe and it was a church of God a Pentecostal church of God and yeah that's what I came from at the beginning. And since then, or from then on, I listened to different ministers to and fro. Um, some better than others. I've stood outside of places like Maple Leaf Gardens waiting for the likes of Benny Hinn in his healing ministry, supposedly. And um, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> I've been to the laughing uh, ministry of Rodney Howard Brown to all over the place looking for the word being interested in the word at times looking for um, experience 
not so much of the word I was looking for, I would say at those times. I was looking to be healed. I was looking for my life to be fixed. I was looking for this and looking for that. And the whole time, when I really think back on those days, horrible days, really, when I really look back on it, I wasn't really looking for how I can live my life in the correct manner following the Lord. It was looking for things. It was looking to be blessed. It was looking to be blessed with a better job, better house, a better spouse, a better this, a better that. And it was all wrong. You know, sometimes some of us, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on here a little bit, but it, I, it, it's coming to my head. So, you know, I believe it needs to be said. That rhymes. Um, <laughs> we were doing so many things, but we were doing so many things the wrong way. The The hunger was there, but I don't believe the hunger was put forth in the right way. And I was misguided, I believe, because I was moving towards what I was being taught. I was moving towards what others around me thought was the right way. So I would say it was innocent. And I've been through some horrible times. I've in past been a horrible person. I've done things that I should not have done. Things that I know that were wrong, but I did them anyways. Seeking enjoyment for now, but not thinking about the future and the impact on other people. And it's sad now, even though I was reading the scriptures myself, because <clears throat> when you're in a church and again, if you're being taught a certain way, sometimes you will read a scripture and the way that a minister might, or just a teacher might bend the scriptures, you're not reading the word with an open heart. You're reading it already primed with a tainted viewpoint of the scripture. So you might pass over things often, many times. And now I look at how I erred in many of the ways, but I'm so, 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 so thankful to God that he allowed me to see the error of many of my ways. And I have decided that I'm going to go forth in a more humble and open way to the Word of God, but not necessarily open to just being taught by just anyone. Okay. So here's the question. Six minutes in on this segment here. Is the Reformed theology for black people? You might think, well, that's way out of left. <laughs> that's funny. Anyways, you, if you got that joke, you got it. Anyhow, is Reformed Theology for Black People? And I'm going to be reading a post or an article by a gentleman named Jamar Tisby. Tisby. And at the time, him writing this, he, he was a, uni he was a university student. He was a doctorate, a doctoral um, student, I believe. That's how he said he was. Let's see. I'll just read it. Jamar Tisby is president of The Witness, 
a black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, and culture. He is the co-host of Pass the Mic podcast and a doctoral student in history at the University of Mississippi. Okay, so that's where he was at that time. I believe, well, that was at least two or three years ago, so it's possible that he is a doctor now, has a doctorate in history, possibly. I don't know. I can honestly say from my dry run yesterday, because I like to... I like to get the information the same time that my readers get. And it might sound a little bit lazy. It probably is. But at this point, it's not (laughs) that way because I read it yesterday. And I can say I definitely don't concur with a lot of things that he says in this article. Some things I believe do apply to people here in Canada as well. But there's some things that don't resonate at all from my experience as a black person growing up in Canada and going to church. But I do understand a lot of it. And, you know, what spurred this on for me was that I noticed the churches that I believe are preaching the word, teaching the word to someone like me at a level where I can understand and at a level where I know that they're taking their scriptures straight from the book. And when something seems a little bit obscure or something that seems a little bit unclear, I like the fact that these ministers like a John Barnett or a John MacArthur or or R.C. Sproul would take it and compare it, not compare it, but open it by looking at other scriptures in the Bible and not just pulling it off of their life experience or what they've been told or what they've dreamed up. And I really appreciate that. But I noticed that these churches, except for maybe John MacArthur's, but I mean, that's because, you know, the the camera pans around a lot in these churches sometimes. I noticed that I'll see a few black faces (laughs) in uh, very few black faces in some of these churches. And I wondered, I, I was wondering why You know, why aren't there more black people in these churches? Well, these churches are in America. So reading this document here, it might answer some of the questions for people. But I can honestly say some of it, which I will comment on while I read, is not my experience. Okay, so just putting that out there. And anything that I really, really disagree with that I catch as I read it to you, I will probably make a comment about it. Okay. So, back to the question. Is Reformed theology for black people? Here's his answer. Or whatever. (laughs) Given the history of slavery and racism practiced by white Reformed Christians, black black people are unlikely group to identify as reformed but that doesn't mean it didn't resonate a friend recently asked me is reformed theology for black people as a president of the reformed african-american network i have frequently pondered this question and it is one that eludes an easy answer so he's going to go on here a bit Reformed theology is part of the flood of teachings that tumbled forth 
from the Protestant Reformation. Now, I wouldn't say tumbled forth, but sure, I would just say came out of, but I guess it wasn't whatever eloquent enough <laughs> it came out of the protestant Pro- protestant reformation while all protestant churches christians traced their ecclesiastical lineage to the reformation reformed theology represents a distinct branch of the church theologians and churchmen such as john calvin herman bavinck and jonathan edwards advanced the tradition which emphasized the sovereignty of God and a precise scholarly scholarly brand of theology. One issue black people have with Reformed theology is the Eurocentric roots. Reformed theology came to America by way of the European countries, including France, England, Scotland, and the Netherlands. White educated men crafted teachings wrote the books and led the churches they did not have black people in mind and that's probably correct one of the most frustrating aspects of the reformed theology for black christians is the fact that many reformed believers condoned slavery or were even slaveholders themselves All of their focus, meticulous expositions of the Bible didn't lead them to conclude that people should not be property. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. And I'm going to say, you know, I believe, especially if you're if you're talking about Americans, they had a total different look on the word slave. And I believe Back in the day, people who taught scriptures might have saw the word in the scriptures and assumed that they were supposed to be slaves. And in America, those slaves happen to be black. And I'm not so sure that scripture wasn't explained to these people. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. Now, this day and age, if you read the word slave, unless it was a slave of Christ, which all Christians are, I believe when it would say something like, you slaves be um, whatever to your masters, I believe that some people really did think that was black people and black people were supposed to be slaves. But I don't know for sure. And I can't make any excuses for anyone. So that would be somebody else's job because I was not there. I'm not American. Now, yes, there were slaves in Canada. I have no explanation for those. My family came to Canada in 1966. And that's all I have to say about that. <clears throat> and I have read history books. I have watched <laughs> history, movies of history. And depending on who was teaching it, it might be tainted this way or that way. So honestly, I'm not 100% sure. <clears throat> okay, going back to the answer. Moving forward to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And I can honestly t- tell you that my father was a young man during those days. And he did actually tell me from eyewitness of what he saw in in places like Florida and the treatment of black people, and it was not good. (laughs) Just being honest. Like many conservatives, sorry, like, like many conservative white evangelicals were, oh, wait, wait, wait. Moving forward to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, reformed Christians 
like many conservative white evangelicals, were either silent about the struggle for black civil rights or they outright opposed it. Given the history of slavery and racism practiced by white Reformed Christians, black people are unlikely are an unlikely group to identify as Reformed, but that doesn't mean it doesn't resonate. The rise of Christian hip-hop. Now this part here, I can honestly tell you, and you know from listening to my list of those 65, and I guarantee you my list can probably go over a hundred of different ministers that I've honestly sat under and listened to. Hip-hop has nothing to do with why I ended up watching um, sermons and teachings and questions answered by people like R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur or John Barnett or Charles Stanley. Matter of fact, when I stumbled onto Charles Stanley, because he was the first out of all these gentlemen that I listened to, I got to a place in my life where I didn't need somebody speaking down to men and presenting the gospel from a feminist point of view, knowing full well that 75 to 80% of their members or parishioners or people watching were women and a lot of times single women or old, old women. I just needed somebody to just give me the word. I didn't need the jokes. I didn't need the male bashing that was going on in a lot of those churches. I didn't need the entertainment value of people doing theatrics in their sermons. I just wanted the word at that point. And I stumbled onto Charles Stanley. Probably through WDCX, but I actually started tuning in on his Sunday night broadcasts and listening to him on the radio. And then I slowly moved on from there. But I will read this guy's, um, I will still go back to this um, post here. The rise of Christian hip-hop has played a role in recent surge of interest in reformed theology among African Americans. With groups like Cross Movement paving the way in the 1990s, another wave of lyrical theology emerged in the 2000s. One of the most influential groups of this period was the label label reach records which featured artists such as show baraka triply and tadashi along with other christian rappers including shaylin flame and voice these artists were black urban and unashamed of their faith now i can honestly tell you the only one only even secular kind of black hip-hop kind of whatever group was probably dc talk and i can't even remember if they were even hip-hop or not they were probably pop gospel or something and that was before hill songs and all that stuff um the contemporary reformed thinkers such as john Par- piper and that's john piper yes i listened to him too he wasn't on my list rc sproul and john MacArthur influence these Christian rappers, and hence they call John MacArthur Johnny Mac, apparently. <laughs> um, quotes and sound bites even showed up in the songs. The music and the culture, these artists embodied, in, uh, embodied introduced many young black Christians to Reformed theology without necessarily labeling it as Reformed theology. As I um, actually keep reading, I also forgot to mention Ravi Zacharias. I listened to him a lot. 
And I did always notice that Ravi would more, more or less quote old philosophers more than he would quote the Bible in most of the sermons that I listened to. And I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I know that there was certainly some sort of smearing going on for Ravi after he passed away. And I can't say whether it is founded or unfounded, but that's that's certainly what happened. I don't know how many facts were out there or how much evidence was out there because I wonder why it didn't come out while he was alive, but that didn't go down too well for the gospel, for Ravi, for the family of God or anything. And I still don't know what happened with all that, but anyway. Other factors too. Having aided in the rise of self-professed Reformed Black Christians, greater access to seminaries that teach Reformed theology, so you could actually get into the, the seminaries as a Black person. I guess at one point you couldn't. As well as church planting efforts in predominantly Black urban neighborhoods have pro, have broadened the pathway into the tradition. In the past few years, Though many black Christians have reconsidered the reform label in many ways, the 2014 killings of Mike Brown by a white police officer in Fergus, Ferguson served as a turning point. Younger black Christians became more vocal about systemic injustice, such as mass incarcerations and police brutality. They explored how their faith spoke to the persistent issue of inequality that harm black people. Going off a little bit here. These were themes that many white reform pastors and theologians seldomly addressed. When they did talk about justice, it was most often focused on individuals and not the collective systematic, sorry, collective systemic nature and impact of racism over generations. On top of that, the 2016 presidential presidential election saw 81% of white evangelicals who voted through their support towards the Republican candidate, while conservative white Christians usually voted Republican, black Christians expected on Donald Trump's racial rhetoric and support it in support from the white nationalists and white supremacist groups to at least dampen white evangelical enthusiasm for him. Instead, white evangelicals actually showed slightly stronger support for Trump in 2016 than for Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney in 2012. Black Christians realized the new big wait. Black Christians realized a new how and oh and new sorry you messed the D there and knew how big the rift was between their core concerns and those of their white reformed co-religionists. Five hundred years after five hundred years after Martin Luther challenged the Catholic clergy. On key church teachings, the Reform- Reformation continues. This time, the transformation needs to emphasize not only orthodoxy, right belief, but orthopraxy, right action, as well. Reformed theology prides itself on intellectual explore- exploration of the faith. In the 21st century, 
though it might also embrace the ethical approach to the Bible, especially regarding race and public justice. Now, there I will say, and I've learned this of recent years, I would just like to see justice in society. And I believe that once you start putting words, as I've been taught, <laughs> and I remember it and I really did think about Once you start throwing words in front of justice, it ceases to be justice. It starts to be like social justice or public justice. There's something bad about putting words in front of it and calling it justice. <clears throat> so I'm not really on where he's coming from here, but of course I am Canadian. I'm different from my, my experience has been totally different, I, I assume. As an African-American, he says, I'm learning to draw more intentionally on the expansive black church traditions to address these modern times. And I'm not, I can honestly tell you. <clears throat> Here we go. The black church has always highlighted the demand of the Bible when it comes to public action. The Reverend Charles H. Pierce, who helped establish the African Methodist Episcopal church in Florida in the 19th century, put it this way. A man in this state can do not, can, cannot do his whole duty as a minister, except if he but looks out for the political interest of his people. Religious belief motivated black women and men to pursue racial justice even at the risk of their lives, Richard Allen, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Fannie Lou Hammer, Coretta Scott King, John Perkins, and a multitude of other black Christians whose names will never appear in the history books saw the inseparable connection between Christian faith and righteous practice. The modern day reformation must also bring to the forefront those groups that have been historically muted or silenced because of prejudice. Ending here, black and brown people among Christianity is growing exponentially in the majority of the world. Must, oh, I don't know, I'm reading this badly, sorry guys, must ac articulate the doctrines in a way that makes them relevant to present day women as half the population there we go and equal as god's image bearers must have a vocal visible role in the movement white christians must follow and learn from those whom society has often marginalized Today's reformation must be an inclusive one that makes room for both women and men, all economic classes and every tribe and tongue of those who believe. Christianity is a worldwide religion that includes a diverse array of people. The challenges of the reformation in America today is to reflect the heterogeneity, heterogeneity, I think, while maintaining unity in the midst of it. Okay. So that article was on religionnews.com. I don't agree with a lot of what um, he's saying, but I will tell you this. There is some consideration to a lot of what he said, but it is so important to not try to 
make up for um, injustices by people. Injustice by people. In other words, you don't have to put a black slant on church or a feminist slant on church or a poor slant on church or an injustice slant on church. You just need to go to a church that preaches the word, that stays on the word, that cares for the people, a ministry that's caring for the people, all of the people in a proper manner. And that has a clean and loving minister with men backing him up in the clergy or in the, as far as deacons, helping him to um, oversee the church to make sure that the minister, even as he speaks from the pulpit, is preaching the word and he's not favoring culture or any other movement of of the day. I believe that's one way you're going to get into a proper church. But um, after this, I'm going to put you to a little question and answer by John Piper. He answers the question in about 12 minutes. And then you're going to listen to, after that, um, a little teaching, which is about, I can't remember, about 47 minutes. And it's by R.C. Sproul. And it's called, Every Christian Believes in Predestination. Now, you might be like, what? (laughs) Just listen. If it wasn't something that I thought you needed to listen to, I wouldn't put it on here. I wouldn't put anybody on here to talk for over 30, 40 minutes if it wasn't something that was necessarily needed to be put out there for people to hear. And you can open your Bible and compare and listen to the words that he reads and you tell me, throwing away all of the scales and all of the things that might distort your view, just listen. Okay? All right. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go. We have an email from a young man, Stephen, who is currently enrolled in the very fine institution called Bethlehem College and Seminary. Stephen writes in to ask this, Pastor John, I was born and raised in Minneapolis, and I happen to be an African-American. I am convinced that all believers should view the Bible with reformed eyes. No race is disqualified from enjoying the goodness of the gospel with a reformed mindset. So why do you think that black people like myself are few in reformed circles? I'm not bitter, nor do I question God. I'm just curious how you view this phenomenon. Well, I view that question with a lot of thankfulness <laughs> because, because anybody who, number one, cares about the issue of racial harmony and cares about biblical doctrine and who's not bitter and who's not questioning God, what a great combination. So praise God, and I'm thankful. This is risky to talk about. Anything to do with race is risky, but this one especially because it's so easy in answering a question like this to fall into stereotypes in both directions, white or black or any other ethnicity. But I settled it a long time ago, and I would invite 
other folks to do the same. (laughs) I settled it a long time ago that the risks of wrestling with these issues out loud for others to hear are more hopeful than the risks of keeping your mouth shut forever about these issues and supposedly playing it safe. That's what a lot of pastors do and a lot of leaders, a lot of people that just don't want to get attacked. And so they don't say anything, which I think in the long run is less helpful. So my my first response to, to the question is to say, I'm not the only or the best person to address the issue. It's being talked about regularly these days. There are great discussions at, for example, the Gospel Coalition website. I just watched a panel with Trip Lee and Lecrae and Eric Mason just a few days ago on this very issue, and it was helpful. Uh, books have been written about this issue by Anthony Carter, the BD on Yabwile, Carl Ellis, Uh, good books, solid, helpful books about what that's like for the Reformed tradition to emerge or flourish in the black setting. So I I would just say seek out, whoever's listening to this, seek out uh, African-American brothers who have thought this through and are working it through every day about what it's like to uh, function in Reformed circles or embrace Reformed theology. So here are my four answers to the question. I did have four specific answers to the question, all of which no doubt are going to need nuancing uh, by people with sharper eyes than mine. And here's the way I'm putting the question. It's a little different. It gets at the same thing, but I'll I'll tell you why I'm shifting it. I'm going to say, why are there not more blacks embracing Reformed theology? And I choose to ask the question that way instead of saying, why so few? Because I think there are more than we think. And it skews the question to put put it like we know there are few, really? Uh, comparatively speaking, I'm not so sure of that. So just, just say, why not more? And I choose to say, why not more embracing Reformed theology rather than functioning in Reformed circles? Because circles are a little bit unclear to me, and and I don't want to replace a theological conviction with a sociological place. So so that's the reason for my asking my question, uh, why are there not more blacks embracing Reformed theology? And, and here are my—and before I give my answers, we really need to say, you know, it's just as interesting a question to ask, why aren't more whites embracing Reformed theology? <laughs> and, and, and why aren't there more Asians? And really the most important question, why aren't there more humans <laughs> embracing Reformed theology? Okay, but that's not what he asked, so I'll go to his question. Number one, in history, blacks were excluded from white churches where Reformed theology was articulated as they were from virtually every other kind of white church. This is to our shame. It's not news. Why it happened is a huge issue for another time, but it is utterly relevant to the question. You you can't exclude a whole people from the rigors of weekly Reformed preaching and expect the doctrines to flourish, at least not in the same way they might if seeds of truth are watered every week in that kind of church. That's number one. Number two, in history, blacks were excluded from 
equal formal education, especially at the higher levels where systems of thought are discussed and refined. Reformed theology, in its historic fullness, is a synthesis of biblical truth. And the work of synthesis assumes an enormous wealth of knowledge that is passed along uh, certain serious educational lines. These lines produce teachers and preachers who then spread the synthesis by speaking and writing for subgroups they represent. And if blacks are excluded from this long tradition, then it will not surprise us that leaders will emerge in their churches, where they're allowed to go, Uh, along different routes and with different approaches to the Bible. But but here's where I want to stick in um, a caution not to overstate the absence of Reformed theology in the black tradition. If you, if you change the angle on your lens and start seeing crucial truths of Reformed theology, apart from the systematic structure, and terminology, one could argue that the central lines of Reformed theology were pervasive in the Christian black tradition in America. Just take the sovereignty of God, for example. The the preaching and the singing of black slaves and post-Civil War black churches virtually never questioned God in the miseries of their lives. It is amazing. Egypt was horrible. Suffering was pervasive. Slavery was unthinkable. Whites were culpable. But God, he was the deliverer. And he was never portrayed as helpless. Like, where was God while we were in chains? You don't ever find a spiritual that sings like that. The spirituals are shot through with the sovereign Lord of history. Carl Ellis has just an incredibly helpful take on this in his book, Free Free at Last, where he describes the kind of preaching and theologizing that distinguished white and black churches uh, in, in this history where blacks were not welcome in classical academies. He said, white preaching is like playing classical music, meaning the score is written Uh, on paper, and the notes are there, and the preaching happens by following the score. In black preaching, it's like jazz, not classical music, it's like jazz, and a huge part of jazz is improvisation. Uh, Now, when both are done well, great skill is required, very different skills. And the point here is that the kind of preaching and theologizing that grew up outside the academies— would not have the same classical forms, but may indeed have profound reform convictions at root. Number three, for hundreds of years, the burden of people's attention is on their survival. They will not have the privilege of relative comfort and leisure granted to the dominant culture. And a lot of systematic doctrinal reflection requires that kind of freedom from press of survival urgencies. And only in recent times, I'm talking 
60, 80 years, only in recent times have the doors opened for blacks to do the kind of work that doesn't demand the sweat of their faces from dawn to dusk with evenings needed for recovery, not rigorous theological reflection. Lastly, um, and I'm sure there are a lot more than these, but these are the four that came to my mind. I would mention that one reason today there aren't more blacks embracing Reformed theology, though there may be vastly more than we think, is that the current Reformed awakening, say the last 50 years, starting with the banner of truth, Puritan reprints, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, that awakening has flourished first among white Westerners, which means that it has spread around the world and encounters obstacles. What has to be overcome is that when a young black man considers this truth, he has to overcome the fact that for him it may look intrinsically white. Then it it follows um, (laughs) that he's not going to be real quick to jump on board. Um, Some of the black brothers who are persuaded by the Bible, not because any white man said any particular thing, they look to some in their community like they're sucking up to the white establishment. And it takes a lot of courage and assurance of who you are in Christ and and in the Bible to stand in that situation. So those are my four reasons for why I think more blacks aren't embracing Reformed theology. And, And I think it would be more fruitful and encouraging to ask the question, how do we explain the incredible growth of black and reformed? Uh, but others would do a far better job with that than I, and that wasn't the question that was asked. Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor John. I appreciate your willingness to tread here. And uh, we're going to break for the weekend now, but we will return on Monday to address a question haunting a listener about why God would threaten judgment for anyone who fails to delight in him. Doesn't that sound inhumane and maybe a little bit manipulative? I'll ask Pastor John to address that on Monday. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We'll see you then. And thanks for listening to the Ask Pastor John podcast. And now, finally, we're going to move on to Pastor um, Dr. Mishur R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, great teacher. John Piper was teaching and preaching at the same time. It might not have been a whole bunch of shouting and jumping and stomping and clapping. Well, he was just answering a question. So what am I saying? The bottom line is, I honestly think that what he had to say, people should ponder and think about what he was saying. Because there's so many people who are just pulled off to the side into various sects of the so-called evangelical movement and some people are in churches and they really really deep down know that they shouldn't be in those churches there are some that are obviously lost and they're there but for the rest of you really think about it and um, now I'm going to throw you over to R.C. Sproul the late R.C. Sproul amazing teacher and someone who John MacArthur looks up to very much and misses him as a friend as well but um 
what I really wanted to say was, I understand that you've been taught in certain churches in a certain type of way, but I'm asking you to listen to these teachings, these questions being answered with your Bible open and with your heart open to hear what they have to say and compare it to the scriptures. You understand? And if you've never even opened a scripture or opened up a Bible, if you don't even own a Bible, you can open up the word of God on online these days. Um, talk to people, you know, who are Christians and see what they think. And just don't be swayed by people's opinions, but go to the word of God. If you are a believer, if you have been quickened to faith in Jesus and you want to know more, think about where you're getting your teaching from, where they're getting their teaching from and what they're talking about. So without further ado, here's R.C. Sproul. A little uh, gap in the middle there. I mean, the beginning of it, but he'll be there. He's going to talk for approximately 55 minutes. And if you don't have time to listen to this whole teaching at this particular time, you can always come back to it. If it is important, you will. People make time for things that are important to them. Okay? Here we go. In the study of theology, there's one word that when it is spoken often strikes terror in the souls of the faint-hearted. And that word is the word predestination. I know whenever the subject comes up at the seminary where I teach, the students think that it's the most juicy and delicious of all theological subjects, and it has a tendency to uh, evoke instant controversy and debate. And we're going to look briefly in this session at this concept of predestination. But before I do that, I want to give one word of caution. I think that the doctrine of predestination is difficult. And it causes a great deal of perplexity and bewilderment whenever it is discussed and whenever it is studied. And it's a, it's a question that requires, I think, not only caution, care, and diligence, but also a special measure of patience with each other as we struggle over the manifold implications that uh, can easily be drawn from it. But I'm also convinced that as, uh, as difficult as the subject may be, it is equally or even more important for us to study it. Martin Luther, for example, when he was engaged in the uh, leadership of the Protestant Reformation, of course focused his teaching on the central issue of that time, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Luther said of that doctrine, namely justification by faith alone, that it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That is, he was trying to underscore as emphatically as he knew how the importance of the doctrine of justification to the Christian faith. 
When it came, however, to the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election, Luther had this to say, the doctrine of election is the core ecclesia, the heart of the church. In fact, when he engaged in debate with Erasmus of Rotterdam on the subject of election and predestination, he thanked Erasmus, who uh, obviously disagreed with Luther on the matter. He thanked Erasmus that Erasmus had not pestered Luther on trivial matters, but that he had uh, undertaken to debate on matters that go to the very heart of the Christian faith. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that this doctrine of predestination is not a peripheral, tangential, secondary matter of concern for biblical Christianity. Now as soon as I say that, I realize that in the popular understanding of our culture, we hear statements frequently like uh, the following two statements. One, that the Bible doesn't teach predestination, and two, that nobody in this day and age believes the doctrine anyway. Now, I'd like to speak to both of those popular statements that I regard as erroneous statements and misconceptions and take them uh, by looking at the second one first because it's the easier of the two to refute the statement that nobody believes uh, in predestination anymore. Let me refute it with a simple syllogism. The syllogism goes like this, I am a buddy, okay? <laughs> I believe in predestination, therefore somebody does believe in predestination. And if I am the last in the world to do so, I apologize for my obstinacy and uh, my being so passe and out of date, but as long as I'm breathing and living, we, it is simply not true to say nobody believes in predestination because I most certainly do. And of course I'm being facetious because I'm not into the Elijah syndrome where I have to say I, I alone am left. Uh, there are tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of Christians in the world today who still believe in predestination. And I think the chief reason for that is the refutation of the first premise that I mentioned a moment ago, the statement that the Bible doesn't teach it. The reason I'm convinced that millions of Christians still ascribe and adhere to the doctrine of predestination is because the Bible teaches it. And I might add the Bible teaches it clearly and unambiguously. So clearly and unambiguously, dear friends, that virtually every denomination in church history that has taken the time to articulate their confession of faith, to, to write a creed of their beliefs, have been constrained to confess some statement about predestination. What I'm saying simply is virtually every church has a doctrine of predestination. Now, not all of those churches agree on 
the meaning of the doctrine of predestination or the extent of the doctrine of predestination or how the doctrine of predestination touches people's lives where they live, but because the Bible so clearly speaks about it, every Christian church has been uh, constrained to say something in their creedal statements uh, regarding predestination. Let's just take a moment to read a couple of statements that may be of interest to you from church history. First of all, from the uh, classical expression of faith that came from in the early days, the formative days of the Church of England, their classical uh, confession being the 39 Articles of the Church of England and of the Episcopal Churches. It says this, predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God whereby, and then in parentheses, before the foundation of the world was laid, end of parentheses, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Here, the Church of England professed faith in a predestination that was unto life and was by God's eternal secret counsel and decree designed to bring the elect to Christ as vessels of honor. Now, here's another one from the 17th century, from 1689. We read this statement. Those of mankind who are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love, comma, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. Well, that surely must have come from the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Helvetic uh, Confession or the Belgic Confession or some other Presbyterian and Reformed uh, tradition maybe from the pen of John Calvin. No, this comes historically from the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, a statement uh, uh, articulating the doctrine of predestination in terms uh, uh, so precise and concise that would have uh, delighted John Calvin in his most sanguine moments. But again, I say, why are these churches and other churches uh, making such a confession regarding predestination, because predestination is not something invented by Luther or invented by St. Augustine or contrived by John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or any of the others whose names are so often associated with the doctrine, but because this doctrine comes to us patently from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Let me direct your attention to a moment for a moment, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter, where Paul, in giving his greetings to the saints at Ephesus, says, Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now, I want everyone to know that in the 16th century, people like Beza and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and Luther didn't run back into the text of Ephesians and stick that word predestination in there. That word was in there from the beginning. And the word in the Greek proorizo means to foreordain, to choose in advance, or as we say in English, to predestine. Now, we all know what the word destination means or destiny. When we're about to take a trip, uh, we may go to the travel agent and ask uh, to buy some tickets for uh, an airplane or the train or the ship or whatever, and obviously the, the agent has to know what. What is your destination? That is, where are you going? What is the terminus point toward which you are heading? Now, what the concept of predestination means is that our destiny, our destination in some sense has been decided in advance, predestination. And it, as we read in these confessions, is simply a reflection of what the Apostle is telling us in Ephesians, that the pre, the reference point of the pre, is defined biblically as being from the foundation of the world. That before the world was created, God had a plan. And that plan, according to His secret counsel and according to the good pleasure of His will, He made a decision to do something, a sovereign decision to do something, namely to predestinate something for some reason. And I think we will see clearly that what He predestines are people and what they are predestined unto or for is, as we're told here in the Scripture, adoption in the Beloved in Christ. That we are predestined in Christ unto salvation.
that if you are a Christian before you were ever born, before your mother was born, before your father was born, before Adam and Eve were made, God determined from all eternity your destiny in Christ, that you have been chosen in the Beloved unto salvation, and that you are His craftsmanship unto eternal life. Now, if that is true, that is an extraordinary matter, and a matter that, again, may be very perplexing, but I would think would be the cause of great rejoicing among Christians who understand that God's grace is so powerful, that God's grace extends back so far into time, that in the sovereign Creator's plan for the ages, He determined to shed His grace on you, to prepare a place for you in heaven. The New Testament speaks of the time when God will say, come, or when Jesus said, well, come, my beloved, inherit the kingdom which the Father has prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay. All right, I haven't said anything controversial yet, really. Uh, again, just about everybody who struggles with the doctrine of predestination understands that predestination is rooted in eternity and that predestination is concerned for personal salvation in Christ and that it is a wonderful thing properly understood. But where it gets sticky, where it gets controversial is when we ask the question, on what basis does God make His choice? How and why and upon what conditions does God determine who will receive this amazing gift of saving grace? Does God potentially predestine everyone to salvation? Or does He only predestine some to salvation? And if so, what about those who aren't predestined to salvation? Do they have no chance, no opportunity, no hope? Uh, I remember once when I was sitting in a seminary classroom and the president of the Presbyterian Seminary was happened to be the lecturer that day, and one of the students raised his hand and said, Dr. So-and-so, do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? Now, this is the president of a Presbyterian seminary who's bound by vow, ordination vow, not only to believe it but to teach it. He reacted as if he were having an allergy attack to the doctrine of predestination, and he said, no, he said, I don't believe that God brings some people kicking and screaming against their will into the kingdom who don't want to be there while at the same time refusing admittance to others who desperately want to enter. So that this professor, I mean, this is a trained, skilled theologian who understood predestination to mean that God coerces and forces some reluctant sinners into His kingdom and arbitrarily refuses entrance to others who 
so much want to be there. What a horrible caricature of the Presbyterian and Reformed doctrine of predestination. But let's take a moment and look at some of the cardinal features of the different approaches to the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine found its earliest point of theological debate in the fourth century when a monk in the Roman Catholic Church took issue with the Bishop of Hippo, the great, and perhaps the greatest, certainly the greatest theologian of the first millennium of, of church history, Aurelius Augustine. This uh, monk, whose name was Pelagius, and we'll put his name up here, we want to always remember Pelagius's name. Pelagius responded in outrage to a statement that Augustine had made. And that statement that Augustine had made and had taught was this. It was in a prayer, really. Augustine had written, God commandest what thou wilt and grant what thou commandest. Commandest what thou wilt and grant what thou commandest. And what Pelagius didn't like about that was that it seemed to suggest that God required from people something that they wouldn't be able to do unless God gave them extra grace to make it possible. Well, this I have to say for Pelagius. He understood exactly what Augustine was saying. Augustine was in fact saying, yes, O oh God, I cannot do what you require me and command me to do unless you intervene somehow and give me the power to do it. The Bible says of man in his fallen condition that he's dead in sin and trespasses and that he's by nature a child of wrath since the fall in Adam and goes on to say that the natural man is at enmity with God and he doesn't obey the law of God, neither can he obey the law of God. Jesus teaching and in, in debating with the Pharisees on the extent of the fallenness of the human race made this extraordinary comment, no man can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. Now let's look at that for a minute. No man can come to me. This term, no man, if we would set that in a propositional phrase and apply the rules of logic and the rules of immediate inference to it, we would immediately identify the statement, no man, as a universal negative. All men would be a universal affirmative. No man is a universal negative. Now, no man what? No man can. Now, the word can there translates the Greek word that means to be able. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
many of us have made the simple mistake frequently in the English language confusing two words, may and can. When I was a kid and I would raise my head, hand and the teacher would say, yes, R.C., and I said, can I sharpen my pencil? And she would always answer the same way, I'm sure you can. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am, may I sharpen my pencil? Uh, she was trying to drill into us the difference between may, which talks about permission, and can, which describes ability or power. Now, Jesus is not saying here that no one is allowed or permitted to come to me unless it's given to him the Father. He's talking about ability. No man can. Now, our Lord in that teaching put a universal negative limitation on human ability. There's something, at least one thing, that nobody can do. What? Unless something else happens. Unless a necessary precondition is met. Now, what is it? No man can come to me, Jesus said. Now, let's go back to this debate between Pelagius and Augustine. Does God command all men everywhere to come to Jesus? Is it man's moral obligation to come to Jesus? Yes. But in and of themselves, without some kind of help from God, unless God gives it to them somehow, can't do it. So there we find Exhibit A of what Augustine was talking about. Grant what thou commandest. Command what thou will. No one of us has the moral power and ability to be perfect since we are fallen. Yet we are commanded to be perfect. But that command can never, ever be satisfied unless God does something gracious to make it possible. No man can come to me, Jesus said, unless. That unless points to the absolute necessity of God's work of grace in us before we will ever come to Jesus. Jesus spelled it out a different way to Nicodemus when he said, when he said this, unless a man is born of the Spirit, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he's born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you see that word unless again? Unless A takes place, B cannot follow. A is a necessary condition for B to happen. 
You can't have B without A. And this is what uh, this uh, Pharisee couldn't understand. And Jesus said, hey, you have to be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God. This is why people like Augustine, people like Luther, people like Calvin, people like Edwards, and I keep citing these giants of the faith for a reason. I know that people struggle with the, with the classical doctrine of predestination. And I don't think Christians struggle enough with it. And it certainly is possible that Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Calvin Edwards, who are virtually universally regarded as the most gifted and brilliant teachers that God has given His church since the end of the apostolic age, and that those five men do not agree with each other on every single point of doctrine. That's obvious. But when they all five agree on one point, they could all be wrong. We don't carry any brief for the inspiration or the infallibility of any of those men individually or all of them collectively. But I'll tell you what, before I disagree theologically on a, with a point that Aquinas, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, and Edwards all agree on, I'm going to do it in fear and trembling, and I'm going to do my homework beforehand. And, and, and I put that for your consideration, that something, that, I mean, they could all be wrong, but it's unlikely, folks. But all five of them understood this, that regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, changing the disposition of the human heart, which is a work that God does, and God alone does must take place before anyone will ever come to faith. That all of those men agreed, even Aquinas, that regeneration precedes faith. And they also all agreed that all who are regenerate come to faith. And they also agreed that the grace of regeneration is what Aquinas calls operative grace, not cooperative grace, but operative grace, a grace that works, that when God sheds His grace of regeneration in the heart of man for the purpose of bringing that man or woman to faith, it works. It does what it is designed to do, that those who are quickened are indeed made alive as Paul says in the second chapter of Ephesians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we do, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, quickened us together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him in high places and so on. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
what is at issue in the doctrine of of predestination is not ultimately the debate between god's sovereignty and human free will the ultimate issue here is the central focus of the matter of god's saving grace and a grace that is given on the basis of human merit is not grace a grace that is dispensed on the basis of human works if the human works are the ground of that is not grace and certainly there'd be nothing amazing about it but the amazing thing about grace is that it is altogether gracious now the difficulty is that the Bible is saying that there is a kind of grace that God gives to people to save them, to bring them to faith in Jesus, that He doesn't give to everybody. God does not elect everybody. And that's where the stumbling point is, isn't it? One of the things is, it seems like it's undemocratic, it's un-American. Uh, God is not an equal opportunity Savior. We somehow want God to treat everybody equally, and if He doesn't treat everybody equally, He's not treating everybody fairly. Well, even a cursory reading of the Bible will demonstrate to anyone that God doesn't treat everybody equally. God comes to Abraham in the midst of his paganism and appears to him in a miraculous way, reveals himself to Abraham in a way that he didn't do to the Pharaoh of Egypt or Hammurabi. Jesus had enemies in the New Testament, people like Caiaphas, people like Pontius Pilate who pronounced his death sentence. Jesus prayed for their forgiveness because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't recognize Him for who He was. And the apostles tell us that had they recognized Him for who He was, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They were responsible to have recognized Him. God had given enough uh, information in Scripture and through the testimony of Jesus' own works that they should have recognized Him, but the fact remains they didn't. And so what happens, if you remember the book of Acts, is that after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and even after He ascended into heaven, God made a special dispensation for the enemies of Jesus, so that one day Caiaphas was walking down the road in Jerusalem, and suddenly Jesus appeared to him, and a bright light overwhelmed him. And a voice spoke in Hebrew to Caiaphas, saying, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, isn't it hard for you to kick against the ox goat? And Caiaphas responded by saying, Who is it, Lord? And Caiaphas, and the voice came to Caiaphas and said, It is Jesus whom you persecute. And then in Acts 72, we read about Pontius Pilate going on a trip to Rome, and while he was crossing the sea, in the middle of the night, Jesus appeared to him on board that ship and said, Pontius, Pontius! And this great light shone round about Pontius Pilate. 
And there, Jesus revealed his true identity. And then it says another man who was breathing out fire and hostility, going from church to church, dragging believers out of their homes and throwing them into prison and persecuting them. His name was Saul. Got a commission to carry on the persecution in Damascus. And as he was going along the Damascus road, suddenly this bright light, brighter than the noonday sun, appeared. And he heard a voice speaking him in Hebrew, saying, Saul, Saul. Now, wait a minute. Stop the music. What's wrong with the story I just gave you? Saul, this vehement enemy of Christ, became the number one apologist of the Christian faith in all of history, but not before or until the Lord of glory gave him special grace to open his eyes. Grace that God gave to Paul that he did not give to Caiaphas, that he did not give to Pontius Pilate. Do you see what I'm saying? If God treats everybody equally, why didn't he do that for Caiaphas and for Pontius Pilate? Paul never saw that it was a matter of credit to him that he came to saving faith. He saw his own salvation as a matter of extraordinary grace from beginning to end, and so must you, my friend. Do we really mean it when we say, there but for the grace of God go I? Or are we like the Pharisee in the temple that says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I had the good sense, the insight, and the righteousness to make the proper decision when I heard the gospel. See, Pelagius said that grace is a wonderful thing. And grace facilitates faith. Grace facilitates righteousness. That is, it helps it, but it is never necessary. Augustine said that grace and the grace of election is absolutely necessary for anyone to come to faith. Now, those are the two positions. And Pelagius was condemned as a heretic by the church. However, in the dispute, a moderate position emerged that was called semi-Pelagianism. I like to say it was named after semi-Pelagius, who was Pelagius's cousin, and semi-Pelagius <laughs> lived in, in Florence. No, no, no. Semi-Pelagianism taught this, that man is fallen to such a degree that he can't redeem himself without the assistance of grace. However, what grace does is this, that grace is offered to everybody, but it is still left for the sinner to cooperate with that grace or to reject it. And here's how predestination works, according to semi-Pelagian views, most semi-Pelagian views hold to what is called the prescience view of election or of predestination. It's based on the premise of divine foreknowledge. It goes like this, that from all eternity, from the foundation of the world, God looks down the corridors of time, and He knows in advance who will cooperate with offered grace, and who will reject it. 
Do we understand that? He knows from the very beginning that if this person here hears the gospel and is offered the grace of salvation, that, if th that this one will say yes and this one will say no. And on the basis of that prescience, pre-knowledge or foreknowledge, God predestines. That is, predestination rests upon God's knowledge in advance of how we will respond to the gospel, of how we respond to the offer of grace. And those whom he knows will say, yes, he elects unto salvation. Those whom he knows will say, no, are passed over. I would say that the vast majority of evangelical Christians in the world today hold that view, or one similar to it, of predestination. They say, this is what predestination is. It's basically God's foreknowledge. And in this, in the final analysis, the decision of whether you are redeemed or are lost is based upon your free will, on the choice that you make. One prominent evangelist has said it this way, God does 99% of what has to be done, but he leaves you responsible for that 1%. I've heard two analogies frequently. One is this, that, that man is in serious trouble as a result of his sin, as a result of his fall. He is sick unto death. He is like a man in intensive care in the hospital who most certainly is dying. He has no hope of recovery unless a special miracle drug is offered to him. And that miracle drug indeed that alone can save him is there by his bedside. He is too weak, too sick, too critical to even reach up and help himself to the medicine. Somebody has to pour the medicine on the spoon. Somebody has to come to his bedside. Somebody has to take the spoon with the saving medicine to his very lips. But unless that man opens his mouth to receive it, he will most certainly die. The other analogy is that, that fallen man is like a man who can't swim and he's cast adrift into the ocean. He's, he's gone under twice already. He's going now down under for the third time. His head is already under the water. He's got one arm stretched out, and only the top part of his fingers are above the surface of the water. And unless somebody throws a life preserver, and they better throw it accurately, that preserver has to come right up against his hand. He most certainly will perish forever. And so God throws the life preserver right against his fingers, but if that man doesn't grasp the life preserver on his own strength, he will drown. See, that's not what I find in Scripture. I don't find saving grace being offered to people who are sick unto death in a hospital room. That saving drug is given and administered to a corpse, ladies and gentlemen who is already pronounced dead, who cannot on his own strength even respond to the gospel. What God did for you if you're in Christ is that after you went down the third time and you were stone cold dead at the bottom of the sea, God the Holy Spirit dove into the water, 
picked you up out of the water, took you up on the shore, and resuscitated to you, you and brought you alive again through the power of his creation. You are a new creation in Christ. And that's grace. But you're still saying, wait a minute. I don't like it. Two things I don't like about it. The thing, number one, I don't like about it at all is that God doesn't do it for everybody. And the other thing I don't like about it at all is that it seems to rest in God's eternal counsel and it has nothing to do with my actions. What does the Bible say? I used to hate this doctrine, and I used to have a sign up in my study when I was a seminary student. I fought it kicking and screaming for five years. had the sign up in my study. It said, you are not responsible to God, excuse me, you are responsible to God to believe, to preach, and to teach what God says is the truth, not what you want the truth to be. And when I wrestled with this doctrine, I kept coming back to Romans 9 again and again and again, and it was Romans 9, I couldn't escape, where the Apostle Paul writes these words. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What? What shall we say then? There's no injustice in God, is there? Isn't it strange that Paul anticipates that protest? I don't think Paul would ever, if Paul were semi-Pelagian, I don't think, I think a question, a statement like that, what is there injustice in God, would be a waste of apostolic breath. One of the things that comforts me that the Reformed doctrine of predestination is the biblical one is that the same reactions that the Apostle Paul got and there's the same reactions that Jesus got when he taught the doctrine are the reactions that we get all the time. Nobody gets mad at the Arminian doctrine of predestination. Nobody gets mad at the prescient view of predestination, and I'll tell you why. Because the foreknowledge prescient view of predestination is not an explanation of predestination, ladies and gentlemen. It is the denial of predestination, pure and simple. Because in the final analysis, the decision rests with man. I don't know of any place in Christian doctrine where I'm convinced that humanism has made a deeper inroad than this because it will not take seriously the dimensions of the fall of man that have brought us to the place where we are morally and spiritually dead, and that only the electing grace of God can save us in our spiritual death. In order that God's purpose, according to his choice, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
Is there any injustice in God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see what happens? If the whole world is judged guilty before God, if the whole world is spiritually bankrupt, if the whole world is in, in hostility towards God, spiritually dead, we have this American idea that if God reaches down and sovereignly, according to the good pleasure of His will, gives grace to some of these people and brings them to life and saves them from hell, that he's now therefore morally obligated to do the same thing for everyone else. And somehow if he doesn't, we will stand and protest and say, that's not fair! No, that's not equal. And what God is doing here is saying very clearly, don't you remember what I taught to you through the, the lips of Moses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'm not obligated to be merciful to anybody. If mercy were an obligation, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. And if I want to give my mercy to Jacob and not to Esau, what's unfair about it? What's unjust about it? Now, granted, if God punished Esau and Esau were an innocent man, then there would be injustice. But the biblical doctrine of election, get this point, teaches that some people receive grace, the rest receive justice. No one ever receives injustice from God. Do you understand that? And finally, he said, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Every discussion I've ever been in on the doctrine of election and of predestination has come down to this point, folks. On what does it depend in the final analysis. And my Arminian friends, I'm convinced in the final analysis, have to say, it depends on him who wills. Depends on your free will. Depends on your choice that God sees down the corridors of time. That's what it depends on. The decision is yours. How many times have you heard the evangelist say, there's an election going on here. God votes for you. Satan votes against you. And it's a tie. And you have to cast the deciding vote. If you have to cast the deciding vote, ladies and gentlemen, you are destined to hell with no hope. Because you, in your own strength, unregenerate, will never vote for God. Ever. But according to salvation, according to election, yes, there's an election. But only one person votes. The devil doesn't have a vote. Only one vote that counts. And from the foundation of the world, God cast his ballot with your name on it, if it so be that you are in Christ.
so that it depends not on him who runs, not on him who chooses, not on him who wills, but on the sovereign grace of God. I have to be candid. If the Apostle Paul came in this room right now and heard a bunch of theologians arguing about election and salvation, and they were saying they couldn't get past the final point, and they said, "Look, we, we're arguing, Apostle, on in the final analysis. What does my salvation depend on? on? On my will or on God's will? Which is it, Paul? Please tell us." Can you think of any way that the Apostle Paul could answer that question more clearly than he just did in that statement? I urge you, my beloved brothers and sisters, that if you find this doctrine distasteful, look at it again. I just got a, a letter from a fellow the other day who said he hated this doctrine. He read my book, Chosen by God, and I was so glad that it was useful to him. He said, I picked it up. I said, I wanted to read it. He said, I wanted to find the flaw so I could refute it. He said, and I wrote it. I took copious notes. I underlined everything. I got to the last page, and I said, gee, I couldn't find it. And he said, so what I decided to do, he said, is I decided to read the Bible through from cover to cover three times. He said, and I did. He said, and it seemed like this doctrine was on every page. He said, when I was done with my searching of the Scripture, he said, not only did I embrace the doctrine, but I began to see the beauty of it and to rejoice in it. Oh, beloved, how many times have I heard that testimony from people who have kicked against the ox goad of God's grace? until they saw the sweetness of His mercy and the purity of His power. And so that we humbly confess before us, O oh God, we couldn't in our natural state have possibly turned ourselves to Christ. We had no inclination towards Christ. We were altogether indisposed towards Christ. We were like these people Paul talks of in Ephesians who were dead in sin and trespasses. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of this world, and so on, just like everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy, quickened us, made us alive brought us into His kingdom, not kicking and screaming against our will, because what His electing grace does is to make us willing and eager to pursue the Christ we formerly hated, to love the Savior we formerly despised, to embrace the truth we previously ran from. That's what predestinating grace is all about. And once we understand that, and once we discover it, we get on our knees and we say, Oh God, God, <sighs> command what Thou will, and grant what Thou dost command.